You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jessica Queller has written for television shows that include Gossip Girl, The Gilmore Girls, Felicity, One Tree Hill, and Ed. Her first book is Pretty Is What Changes. Thank you for joining me, Jessica. Thank you. Jessica, as you were living this and writing it, did you were the two simultaneous? Did you start thinking even as it was happening, I'm going to checkerboard these events around? No. There was no thought of a book until after I wrote an article for the New York Times, after I had already tested positive for the BRCA mutation and had pretty much processed the information. So so um, m- most of the territory I cover was, you know, I lived without ever imagining I would ever write a book in my lifetime. You started out um, when your grandmother passed away. That's really kind of the, the earliest point in this book. Mm-hmm. And, and could you talk about the kind of life your grandmother and your mother led? Yes. Well, my grandmother's name is Harriet Tarler, was Harriet Tarler, and she was a movie actress. She played bit roles on the Three Stooges, the old Dragnet series, a ton of movies, Joker's Wild, and um, she was... A very eccentric character. She had three husbands, all of whom were gone by the time I was born. My mother was raised basically with a single mother. Her father, my mother's father was a bad guy and a deadbeat dad. And he was, you know, they were divorced when my mother was young. So my mom was raised by a single working actress on the outskirts of Beverly Hills, sort of the slums of Beverly Hills. They did not have much money, very hand-to-mouth. And, um, you know, my my grandmother was very young at, to be a mother and intensely vain. And now that I think of it, it's quite similar to the Gilmore Girls because they were more like sisters than mother and daughter. And my grandmother milked that. She, she, she didn't want anyone to know she was old enough to have a daughter, really. So as soon as my mom was 19 or 17, she started... Um, you know, calling her her kid sister, and she'd take my mom with her on dates to Vegas. They double date as sisters in Vegas before my mother was eighteen, even. So, it it seems that that your your mother and and your grandmother really had this life that that was a, an exterior life. They were interested in the way they looked and the Absolutely. way things that surrounded them, and that that is betrayed from within. My grandmother was incredibly vain and very focused on beauty and fashion and facade. And my mom was raised that way, and my mom was similar. She um, grew up to be a clothing designer, and she was very beautiful and intensely talented. But her focus... um, her focus was always on clothes and hair and beauty and shoes and the ex- externals. That's one of the things I think that's fascinating in this, in this book is that you draw this great 
uh, portrait uh, of the, the interior and exterior lives, changing places, coming out. A and you, as a young girl, rebelled against that, didn't you? I did. For some reason, I had different instincts as a kid. A and when your mother named you, you're Tiffany, didn't she? Oh, dear. <laughs> Yes, she did. She did. It still makes me cringe all these years later. And how long did you keep the name Tiffany, and why did you change it? Well, that was my name all through college, and I changed it right at the end of my senior year of college, uh, right before I turned 21. Um, I was embarrassed by the name Tiffany growing up, especially it, it, my embarrassment increased as I grew older. I hated introducing myself to new people. I would always quickly say, my name's Tiffany Queller, and emphasize my last name to try to sound more serious. And I just, um, somehow I internalized the name as a powder puff, frivolous, silly name that would inhibit me from being the kind of woman I wanted to be, which was a smart, intelligent, serious person of integrity in the world. And I, and I just, I didn't think that it was possible for me to actually change my first name and ask everyone in my life to call me a new name. So for the longest time, I thought this is just my albatross. I'll have to work doubly hard to be taken seriously in spite of the name Tiffany. A friend of mine just read the galleys and said, I feel sorry for people named Tiffany who are going to read the book because you, you're so harsh about the name. And it's really more my interpretation of the name than an actual name, I think. As you grew up and once you changed your name, you became a writer and led a kind of a, a, an artsy life, an, an interior life, as opposed to the exterior life you've been brought up in. Well, that's Enjoy. not entirely true. I was an actress for a long time, for more than a decade after I was, I changed my name to Jessica. I was still, I was an actress, a theater actress, but um, it took me quite a while to figure out that I always joke I, I dated playwrights all through my 20s. All of my boyfriends have always been writers. And my joke is, it took me about a decade to realize, oh, I don't want to marry an alcoholic, manic, depressive writer. I just want to be one. <laughs> Once you uh, took up writing, you, you got yourself actually uh, really outstanding gigs. How did you do that? I have no idea how that <laughs> happened. I worked really hard and I hustled, but it, I still feel I was very lucky. Um, somehow I was able to be much more aggressive on my own behalf as a writer than I was ever able to as an actress. It was too humiliating to me to try and sell myself and call in favors as an actor. Um, but if I had written something that I was proud of, it felt a little bit more separate from myself, and I felt more confident in handing it and saying, here, here's a solid entity. You can read it and value it or judge it yourself. But um, I, I, was, I was able to be really much more aggressive about um, marketing myself as a writer. Did you try to write books or prose or short stories? Um, not really. I've started a number of plays. I've never finished one. 
I grew up in the theater and my passion and first love is the theater. So I always thought if I could be anything, I'd want to be a playwright. When you began to notice, when your grandmother started dying, mm -hmm. could you talk about how that felt to you and how, how she experienced it? She was not a person who was really equipped to deal with that kind of situation, was she? No. Um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time when my grandmother was very ill. It was right around 9-11. And so I wasn't around while she was suffering and conscious. By the time my mother and sister called me to come to New York, she was in a coma. So when I arrived in the hospital, she, I, I, I never saw her conscious again. So I, um, I, didn't, I didn't really get a sense of her struggle with what was happening. But my mother's reaction to the fact that her mother was likely going to die was startling. My mom um, at the time was 58 and somehow she just never thought her mother would die. She, she never really had anyone close to her die and she thought her mother would always be around. And I, I, I guess it's not unusual that in our culture we just don't talk about or think about death very often. But um, my mom was incredibly traumatized about the reality of her own mother dying, even though her mother was at least 80. Now, your grandmother died of... Kidney failure. Kidney failure. But was it a cancer? Was it associated no, with cancer? No, that's the thing. My mother's mother, my grandmother Harriet, never had cancer. There was, There is no cancer whatsoever on that side of the family. The cancer gene we presume had to have been handed down from my mother's father and we have no contact with him and I've never met him and so I don't know anything about his family history. When your mother first was diagnosed with cancer, how did she react? Well, she was first diagnosed at age 52 of breast cancer. Um, about six years before Harriet died. My mom had advanced breast cancer it was horrible. Um, however, she beat it, and there was never any discussion in our family about death or the possibility of death. The major emphasis at that time was the fact that she was going to lose all of her hair, and she was an incredibly beautiful, very young woman for a woman of 52. She was a clothing designer in New York City and wearing Manola Blahniks and Chanel and Armani suits every day and losing her hair was her greatest nightmare. So there was a lot of emphasis on um, the vanity aspects of cancer and not as much on the true repercussions of cancer, which is that your life is in danger. Uh, as I read this book, one of the things that really made me think is how pervasive uh, the cancer and its effects are in our entire culture. I know. It, it, it's really remarkable how m far it reaches and, uh, and how often you'll encounter some after effect or some uh, manifestation of the way we deal with cancer. Well, one thing that's been absolutely remarkable for me is whenever I meet someone and tell them, oh, I've written a book, and they ask me the subject matter, and I answer, 
I have yet to meet a single person who is not one degree away from cancer. Either their mother, their sister, their best friend, um, themselves, their wife. I, I, every single person is touched by cancer. And that would explain why it's so pervasive. And it has, um, I think, some really interesting uh, effects that, that you talk about, just in the terms of the, uh, the way we react to it and the way that um, it, it changes our, our, our very lives. And, and I'm thinking in particular uh, of your, your mother's reaction with, with her hair. It, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's touching and sweet in a way. It is. I mean, I do believe that privately she had fears about mortality. There's no question that she was terrified when she had breast cancer, and it wasn't all vanity. But the immediate um, result of chemotherapy was that she was going to lose her hair tomorrow, and she would have to go to work and deal with that reality. I, I'm sure she was afraid that she might die at some point, which she did die eight years later. Um, from cancer, so, but but I think when you're dealing with a crisis, or in my experience, you think practically about well, what what does this mean to me today, and what does it mean to me tomorrow morning, and um, so in that case, she was worried about how am I going to go to work, how am I going to continue living a normal life, how how am I going to leave the house. The, when the cancer returned, did. Was there her feel were her feelings any different? Did she start to have the same concerns, the same kind of exterior concerns? Well, first of all, um, we found out that she had advanced ovarian cancer about four days after her own mother died. So it was a one-two punch. We went from the trauma of Harriet's death to immediately being rushed into another hospital across town for emergency surgery with my mother as a patient. So we were, our whole family was in a state of complete shock. And this time it was ovarian cancer. And for a while, the doctors were not clear whether it was a recurrence of the breast cancer in a different place or if it was a, a new primary cancer. And after months, um, the doctors agreed that it was a new primary cancer, which was completely shocking to all of us. What are the chances of getting a primary breast cancer and a primary ovarian cancer? Of course, this is before we knew anything about the BRCA gene. And the BRCA gene is precise, precisely makes a woman at high risk for both of those cancers. So um, it's completely logical that she got both independent cancers. But she was traumatized. Of course, we were all traumatized. And this time, her um, prognosis was much worse than it was for her breast cancer. She had stage 3C ovarian cancer, and stage 4 is, there is no stage 4. I mean, I, there is stage 4. Stage 4 is, means, is the worst. So um, it goes from stage 3C to stage 4. And we were terrified, and we had every right to be, because she died in under two years. During that time, um, you had yourself, somebody told you about this this test. Could you talk about finding out about this test and, and what it what that kind of knowledge meant to you? Well, the week my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, my best friend from high school, Jillian, 
called me and said it just so happened that she was on the board of a charity for a foundation that raised money um, for preventative women's cancers, specifically for breast and ovarian cancer. And so Jillian happened to be knowledgeable about this because it was a charity she was working on, and, and she said, you know, I think you're at high risk because your mom had breast and ovarian cancer, and I think you should go speak to this woman. Her name is Leslie Rosen in the book. And find out what you need to do to, to protect yourself. And I really um, was not interested in thinking about my own health. I was 31 years old. I was, I mean... I had, I had no fear for my own health. The real reason I, I went to meet Leslie is because her mom had also died of ovarian cancer and I wanted to talk to someone who'd been through this and, and learn more about what it meant to have ovarian cancer, for my mother to have ovarian cancer. Anyway, so Leslie told me over our coffee that she ran this foundation and um, it was a clinic where women could go and get this genetic test for the BRCA mutation, which is commonly known as the breast cancer gene. And because my mom had both breast and ovarian cancer, I was a perfect candidate for the test. And that's the first time I learned that breast and ovarian cancer cancers were linked, truly linked. I had not, no doctor had ever told us that. Um, so anyway, I just stored the knowledge in the back of my mind and said, yeah, well, that's interesting. At some point, I'll, you know, maybe I'll take that at some point, just for the hell of it. I did not think that I would ever in a million years be positive for the mutation because Harriet never had cancer. Harriet's sister never had cancer. Harriet, my grandmother. My grandmother, Harriet's mother, never had cancer. There was absolutely no cancer in our family that I knew of, so I thought, this will not be genetic. This is just a fluke. However, I had no idea that you could inherit it from your father's side. And because we had no relationship with my mother's father, we didn't know anything about his medical history. Well, one of the things it, that strikes me that once you enter or are, are afflicted with, or once cancer comes into your life, all of a sudden there's a big learning curve. You have to start figuring stuff out. I mean, it's not just like some things you can get or, you know, if you have uh, an ulcer or something, you can go take some medicine. You don't have to, like, go into this education process. But with cancer, there's a lot to learn, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think there is a lot to learn generally in every kind of medical condition. My, my dad, as it happens, was a powerhouse trial attorney, medical malpractice attorney. So I was raised by a medical malpractice attorney whose livelihood was suing doctors and hospitals for making egregious mistakes. And he raised me and my sister from a very early age to question everything, be your own medical advocate, never just take a doctor's word for anything, that you are responsible for your own health. That doctors and hospitals, they're human beings, they make mistakes every day, every hour, like the rest of us, and that it's your responsibility to manage your own care. So for whatever reason, that was instilled in me since I was a kid. So every time I've been, you know, had to face this sort of thing, illness, or in, my, in a family member, or, or, in, or in my own case, that's already ingrained in me. Now, you 
you heard about this test, but you, you didn't take it for a couple of years. No. First of all, I was young, and I thought my mom got cancer for the first time at 52, so I thought in the worst-case scenario, it wasn't something I'd have to worry about for 20 years. I was 31 when I heard about the test. And um, no doctor had ever brought it up to me. None of my mother's doctors had even... She, she never took the genetic test. It was never mentioned. My sister and I basically lived in the hospital with my mother for months. We knew her doctors intimately. It never occurred to anyone to tell us to be checked. So um, I had this knowledge randomly, and no one pressed me to take the test. It was just something in the back of my mind that I thought, what the hell? Why not? I'd, I'd like to have a clean bill of health in writing just for peace of mind. It's really interesting to me that all this uh, knowledge and stuff is floating around out there, but it's not. It, we're at such a cutting edge of science, and the technology is moving so fast that we really just can't keep up with it. it there's nobody out there saying, out there, you know, watching out and, and collecting this stuff, is there? There's no question that science is moving so quickly that it's outpacing um, it's outpacing our, I don't know how I want to say this, <laughs> it's, it's, the science is evolving so quickly, it's moving faster than we can keep up with it. And the BRCA, this particular test, the BRCA test has been around probably for about 15 years now. Really? Mm-hmm. But um, it's only really started to seep in to the national consciousness in the past five years. And especially in the past year. It's been articles about this test have, have saturated the media, magazines and TV news shows. I believe that this is the first book or memoir on this topic, um, but it's been everywhere in magazines and on television this year. Uh, once you, you had this test, you, you took this test and you were like living the high life. You're, you're a beautiful woman. You've got a great job. You're working on the Hollywood lot. You, you took this test. You didn't even really look for the results right away. No. Well, I, I wasn't really living the high life because I was coming off of about four years of trauma. Sure. Um, I, I had... I can't remember how many years exactly now, the chronology, but around 9-11 is when my mom was diagnosed. Right after 9-11, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Then she fought the illness for almost two years, which was heart-wrenching and a nightmare. And then she died, which was the worst thing ever. And then my sister and I grieved and had to deal with her store and her business and wrap up her affairs for about eight months. So when I came back to California to to write on the Gilmore Girls the same time I took the genetic test, I was coming off of years of trauma. I was just starting to get back to a normal rhythm and I would got this wonderful new job on the Gilmore Girls and I thought, okay, I've lost a few years of my life to sorrow and illness and mourning and now I can be free again and I can date and go out to dinners and have fun and go hiking and so I was just beginning to begin a good fun free life again when this hit 
you took the test and didn't um, you didn't immediate you didn't seek the answer right away did you I mean you, you weren't I wasn't concerned about it I, I, it, um, I didn't I think it was about a month after I took the test I hadn't heard anything and then it occurred to me that I had never heard from the lab and I was more annoyed that it had fallen between the cracks then I was worried about the results and um, and I kept calling the doctor at the lab and he wouldn't call me back and then I was just irritated that I was being treated unwell and I'm not by that I wasn't being treated properly um, but I was never really worried I just I, I took the test the way one would take an HIV test every decade or so when um, the majority of us feel pretty confident when you take an HIV test. Well, I know I don't have AIDS, but why not take a test every 10 years just to know I have a clean bill of health and just for peace of mind? And that is the attitude I had when seeking out this test. I just want to know for sure that I don't have it. When they told you, your reaction was really interesting, I thought. It was? What was it? I don't <laughs> remember. <laughs> well, when... Uh, Cheryl. Oh, yes. I, well, I had already knew the results by the time I mm -hmm. went to see a genetic counselor. Mm -hmm. But the first time I saw a genetic counselor, yes, continue with your thoughts. My, my, my Your response was... was what you I was were, indignant. You were indignant and angry. <laughs> and, and it's kind of funny. I, I have to say that for all the, 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 the pathos in your life and all the horrible things that happened... Constantly through this book, there's there's a lot of humor. I mean, um, it, it a lot of it just reveals stuff. But when, uh, for example, when, when you're talking to one of your friends about your mother's doctor, she said you your she said that your mother's doctor was the best doctor in the country, and this was the friend of someone. And you were wondering how could she be that when her own mother had died. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind of dark, but the way you write it, it it's kind of fun and light. I think this has to do with your prose. It's very clear. Thank you so much. Well, I, I, I thought that it would be very difficult to sell this idea as a book. I sold the book on a proposal because I had been told over and over again, nobody wants to buy a cancer book. Nobody wants to read a cancer book. You know, it's not, it's not a saleable subject. And, um, it is such a dark subject, but I felt that the only way, well, the only way for me to survive in life is is with humor. So even in the worst life circumstances, I always try to find. I know it sounds irreverent to say find the humor in cancer and death, but um, but I think I have developed lately a pretty macabre sense of humor. <laughs> I, I can understand that. Uh, when, well, let's go back to your when when you first heard about it. You heard they told you over the phone, right? You you called yes. them up and they just said you've got this. Well, he didn't want to give me the results over the phone. He was uh, the, the see. I made a mistake. When you take a genetic test, you're supposed to go get educated first, see a genetic counselor, be counseled about what information you're going to be faced with if you test positive and what will happen if you test negative. And I was so irreverent because I was so certain that I wasn't going to have the gene. 
um, I decided to bypass that step and just go to a lab and have it technically done without wasting my time speaking to counselors. I, I thought that I didn't want to bother with um, a therapist when I was certain that I wouldn't have the gene. So I called my, do- my cousin, who's a doctor in Los Angeles, and I asked him to find a cancer lab who would perform this test for me, and I cut corners, and an anonymous lab technician drew my blood. I signed the papers. I wrote a check. I never met with a doctor. I never had a discussion with anyone. So the doctor who was affiliated with the cancer lab had to call some girl and give her these results. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know why I'd taken the test. He didn't know who referred me. So we had a very uncomfortable conversation on the phone, and he did have a terrible bedside manner, but he also was just confounded by what was going on. And once you decided to go see a genetic counselor, yes, your reaction was... I was indignant by the things she was telling me because I was totally ignorant to what it to what a BRCA mutation was and what the repercussions were and I had taken the test blindly and I was shocked absolutely shocked to test positive so now that I was positive and I went to see a counselor I had somehow convinced myself that all it meant is that I would need to get screened more often than a normal person and I also had convinced myself that I wouldn't have to worry about cancer for at least a decade, probably 20 years. Um, That was my ignorance. I hadn't done my research, and I I didn't know the statistics. So when the counselor started throwing these horrible statistics at me and telling me that it was an early-onset cancer and um, that most likely hit women before the age of 50, and at that point I was 35, and, um, and that the gold standard for preventing cancer if you have a BRCA mutation is having a prophylactic mastectomy and removing your ovaries, I completely flipped out. Uh, this is understandable. Now, let's talk a little bit about the statistics because I think that there there's some interesting aspects. So statistics are sometimes can be a little confusing. I mean, the 90% chance won't happen, will happen, means there's a 10% chance it won't happen. And I'm wondering... So tell us, what are the statistics? What it, when you take this test, what does it mean, and well, what can happen? What I find most confusing about the statistics is that different studies will give you different numbers. There is no definitive answer. There is no absolute. You have a 93% chance of this. It doesn't really work that way. Studies give you a range. And um, the consensus for the BRCA1 mutation, which is what I have, is that you, if you test positive for this mutation, you have up to an 87% chance of getting breast cancer in your lifetime and a 50% chance of getting breast cancer before the age of 50. Uh, the, the lab results, when you get this horrible lab report in the mail, it says up to an, an 87% chance, which means you know, maybe you are the one person who has a 40% chance, or maybe you're in the category of someone who has an 87% chance, but the science has not evolved yet to identify what category you're in. So that's all the information they can tell you. And, and there's two versions of this gene, too. There's BRCA2. There's a BRCA1 mutation and a BRCA2 mutation, and um, both mutations 
confer the same risk of breast cancer. However, the BRCA2 mutation has a slightly lower risk of ovarian cancer and a few other differences. Um, Brock, the BRCA2 mutation has a slightly higher risk of male breast cancer, which is extremely rare, but, but happens with this mutation. Now, in retrospect, do you think that your anger at the obliviousness of this person who was giving you this really horrible information, do you think it was misplaced? It was. It was definitely misplaced. Um, she was just doing her job. So I, 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 I think that I was hearing information that I didn't want to hear for the first time, and I was hearing it after the fact when I was already diagnosed you know, with this mutation. So um, I, I definitely displaced all of my anger and frustration at these realities and put it on this poor genetic counselor. After you took the test, you discovered uh, uh, what you thought was a lump in your breast, and, and you tested yourself to the point where you were black and blue? Well, the day that I went to see the genetic counselor, I also went for a battery of tests, preventative screening tests, such as an MRI, a mammogram, a sonogram, a CA-125 blood test, which is a blood test for ovarian cancer. And so um, during the routine exams, one of the doctors um, or radiologists said that there was a spot on, or there, there was something, I can't remember if it was the mammogram or the sonogram, but, but there was something that could be suspicious it was a small lump, and, and it was probably just the fact that I had large, dense cystic breasts, which a lot of young women have. But because of my mutation, we had to be extra, extra cautious. So we had to watch it, and I might have to come back and biopsy, I mean, do a needle biopsy. They were being extremely cautious. It really turned out to be nothing. But once I heard that they saw something, I had to go home for a week and wait until my appointment to have it rechecked. And I drove myself crazy trying to feel it and pinching myself and trying to look in the mirror. And I just, I was a nervous wreck. I think one of, that's one of the things that's really interesting about this book is how frank you are about your own mental state because we get this <laughs> picture of you uh, uh, being somewhat frantic and, and, and manic. Could you talk about experiencing <laughs> that and then having to go back and, I guess, recreate? Now, here you are, calm, composed, and, and happy. Or as I'm, happy as I'm on the, through the fire. I'm on the other side I mean, now. You're, you're on the other side. Could you talk about creating yourself in prose as a character? Well, um, first of all, I've always kept copious diaries. I've always been a journal writer. So... Um, since I was 15 years old, I, I've, I've scribbled for hours in diaries. So I had, I had extremely specific notes in my diaries during every phase of this book, especially throughout my mother's illness. When my mom was dying, I wrote down every word she said 
verbatim. So when it was time for me to write the book, I had to go and pour over my diaries and I wept. I wept for three months while writing that section of the book. And it was extremely painful to go through descriptions of the worst event in my life and then put my writer cap on and say, well, what would be the most dramatic moment to choose and put in the book? What would be the most evocative image? Because I could have filled two books just with those descriptions of horror, and then I had to pick and choose as a writer what would be most effective. As once you um, got this news, you wanted to get control of the situation. And one of the ways you did that was you had an opportunity to write an op-ed piece, which is really, uh, I mean, any writer who gets that opportunity has got to be jumping for joy. But for you, it's got to be a, a, a really odd feeling, huh? Well, that was really neat. And I, my first instinct was not to take control of the situation. My first instinct was to play ostrich and block it out and deal with it a few years down the line. I, when I, when I saw the genetic counselor and I had my positive res I, I tested positive at 34 and I was 35 when I heard for the first time that I should have a double mastectomy, possibly. And I thought, and I was single and wanted a family, I still do, want children. And so I thought there is just no way on this earth that I will ever consider having these surgeries until after I'm married and have children. So why learn about it now because there's nothing I'm going to do about it. So I was going to just go into denial and try to quickly fall in love and have a kid and worry about it later. But then my very dear friend Kay, who happened to be an editor at the op-ed page, gave me this opportunity to write an article for the New York Times and submit it. And if they liked it, they would run it. And all of a sudden, I changed my tune and said, well, in that case, I'll learn everything there is to know about the BRCA mutation, and I'll interview every doctor in the country. And <laughs> so it kind of tricked me into becoming educated. I, my, my first instinct was denial. My interview with Jessica Queller will be continued in tomorrow's podcast. Stay tuned to the Agony Column. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>